Section 1 of Brazilian Tales. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lini. Brazilian Tales by Various Authors. Translated by Isaac Goldberg. Section 1. The Attendant's Confession by Joaquim Maria Machado de Assis, First President of the Brazilian Academy of Letters. So it really seems to you that what happened to me in 1860 is worthwhile writing down? Very well. I'll tell you the story, but on the condition that you do not divulge it before my death. You will not have to wait long, a week at most. I am a marked man. I could have told you the story of my whole life, which holds many other interesting details. But for that, there would be needed time, courage, and paper. There is plenty of paper, indeed, but my courage is at low ebb, and as to the time that is yet left me, it may be compared to the life of a candle flame. Soon tomorrow's sun will rise, a demon sun, as impenetrable as life itself. So, good-bye, my dear sir. Read this, and bear me no ill-will. Pardon me those things that will appear evil to you, and do not complain too much if there is exhaled a disagreeable odor, which is not exactly that of the rose. You asked me for a human document. Here it is. Ask me for neither the empire of the great mogul, nor a photograph of the Maccabees, but request, if you will, my dead man's shoes, and I'll will them to you and no other. You already know that this took place in 1860. The year before, about the month of August, at the age of forty-two, I had become a theologian, that is, I copied the theological studies of a priest at Niteroi, an old college chum, who thus tactfully gave me my board and lodging. In that same month of August, 1859, he received a letter from the vicar of a small town in the interior, asking if he knew of an intelligent, discreet, and patient person, who would be willing, in return for generous wages, to serve as attendant to the invalid Colonel Phillipsburg. The priest proposed that I take the place, and I accepted it eagerly, for I was tired of copying Latin quotations and ecclesiastic formulas. First, I went to Rio de Janeiro to take leave of a brother who lived at the capital, and from there I departed for the little village of the interior. When I arrived there, I heard bad news concerning the colonel. He was pictured to me as a disagreeable, harsh, exacting fellow. Nobody could endure him, not even his own friends. He had used more attendants than medicines. In fact, he had broken the faces of two of them. But to all this I replied that I had no fear of persons in good health, still less of invalids. So, after first visiting the vicar, who confirmed all that I had heard, and recommended to me charity and forbearance, I turned toward the colonel's residence. I found him on the veranda of his house, stretched out on a chair, 
and suffering greatly. He received me fairly well. At first he examined me silently, piercing me with his two fill-in eyes. Then a kind of malicious smile spread over his features, which were rather hard. Finally, he declared to me that all the attendants he had ever engaged in his service hadn't been worth a button, that they slept too much, were impudent and spent their time courting the servants. Two of them were even thieves. And you, are you a thief? No, sir. Then he asked me my name. Scarcely had I uttered it when he made a gesture of astonishment. Your name is Colombo? No, sir. My name is Procopio José Gomes Valongo. Valongo? He came to the conclusion that this was no Christian name, and proposed thenceforth to call me simply Procopio. I replied that it should be just as he pleased. If I recall this incident, it is not only because it seems to me to give a good picture of the colonel, but also to show you that my reply made a very good impression upon him. The next day he told the vicar so, adding that he had never had a more sympathetic attendant. The fact is, we lived a regular honeymoon that lasted one week. From the dawn of the eighth day, I knew the life of my predecessors, a dog's life. I no longer slept. I no longer thought of anything. I was showered with insults and laughed at them from time to time with an air of resignation and submission, for I had discovered that this was a way of pleasing him. His impertinences proceeded as much from his malady as from his temperament. His illness was of the most complicated. He suffered from aneurysm, rheumatism, and three or four minor affections. He was nearly sixty, and since he had been five years old, had been accustomed to having everybody at his back and call. That he was surly one could well forgive, but he was also very malicious. He took pleasure in the grief and the humiliation of others. At the end of three months I was tired of putting up with him, and had resolved to leave. Only the opportunity was lacking. But that came soon enough. One day, when I was a bit late in giving him a massage, he took his cane and struck me with it two or three times. That was the last straw. I told him on the spot that I was through with him, and I went to pack my trunk. He came later to my room. He begged me to remain, assured me that there wasn't anything to be angry at, that I must excuse the ill-humouredness of old age. He insisted so much that I agreed to stay. "'I am nearing the end, Procopio,' he said to me that evening. I can't live much longer. I am upon the verge of the grave. You will go to my burial, Procopio. Under no circumstances will I excuse you. You shall go. You shall pray over my tomb. 
And if you don't, he added, laughing, my ghost will come at night and pull you by the legs. Do you believe in souls of the other world, Prokopiu? Nonsense. And why don't you, you blockhead? He replied passionately, with distended eyes. That is how he was, in his peaceful intervals. What he was, during his attacks of anger, you may well imagine. He hit me no more with his cane, but his insults were the same, if not worse. With time I became hardened. I no longer heeded anything. I was an ignoramus, a camel, a bumpkin, an idiot, a loggerhead. I was everything. It must further be understood that I alone was favored with these pretty names. He had no relatives. There had been a nephew, but he had died of consumption. As to friends, those who came now and then to flatter him and indulge his whims, made him but a short visit, five or ten minutes at the most. I alone was always present to receive his dictionary of insults. More than once I resolved to leave him, but as the vicar would exhort me not to abandon the colonel, I always yielded in the end. Not only were our relations becoming very much strained, but I was in a hurry to get back to Rio de Janeiro. At forty-two years of age, one does not easily accustom himself to perpetual seclusion with a brutal, snarling old invalid in the depths of a remote village. Just to give you an idea of my isolation, let it suffice to inform you that I didn't even read the newspapers. Outside of some more or less important piece of news that was brought to the colonel, I knew nothing of what was doing in the world. I therefore yearned to get back to Hiu at the first opportunity, even at the cost of breaking with the vicar. And, I may as well add, since I am here making a general confession, that having spent nothing of my wages, I was itching to dissipate them at the capital. Very probably my chance was approaching. The colonel was rapidly getting worse. He made his will, the notary receiving almost as many insults as did I. The invalid's treatment became more strict. Short intervals of peace and rest became rarer than ever for me. Already I had lost the meager measure of pity that made me forget the old invalid's excesses. Within me there seethed the cauldron of aversion and hatred. At the beginning of the month of August, I decided definitely to leave. The vicar and the doctor, finally accepting my explanations, asked me but a few days more service. I gave them a month. At the end of that time, I would depart, whatever might be the condition of the invalid. The vicar promised to find a substitute for me. You'll see now what happened. 
on the evening of the twenty-fourth of August. The colonel had a violent attack of anger. He struck me. He called me the vilest names. He threatened to shoot me. Finally, he threw in my face a plate of porridge that was too cold for him. The plate struck the wall and broke into a thousand fragments. "'You'll pay me for it, you thief!' he bellowed. For a long time he grumbled. Towards eleven o'clock he gradually fell asleep. While he slept, I took a book out of my pocket, a translation of an old darling cool romance which I had found lying about, and began to read it in his room, at a small distance from his bed. I was to wake him at midnight, to give him his medicine. But whether it was due to fatigue, or to the influence of the book, I, too, before reaching the second page, fell asleep. The cries of the colonel awoke me with a start. In an instant I was up. He, apparently in a delirium, continued to utter the same cries. Finally he seized his water-bottle and threw it at my face. I could not get out of the way in time. The bottle hit me in the left cheek, and the pain was so acute that I almost lost consciousness. With a leap I rushed upon the invalid. I tightened my hands around his neck. He struggled several moments. I strangled him. When I beheld that he no longer breathed, I stepped back in terror. I cried out, but nobody heard me. Then, approaching the bed once more, I shook him, so as to bring him back to life. It was too late. The aneurysm had burst, and the colonel was dead. I went into the adjoining room, and for two hours I did not dare to return. It is impossible for me to express all that I felt during that time. It was intense to perfection, a kind of vague and vacant delirium. It seemed to me that I saw faces grinning on the walls. I heard muffled voices, the cries of the victim the cries uttered before the struggle, and during its wild moments continued to reverberate within me, and the air, in whatever direction I turned, seemed to shake with convulsions. Do not imagine that I am inventing pictures or aiming at a verbal style. I swear to you that I heard distinctly voices that were crying at me, Murderer! Murderer! All was quiet in the house. The tick, tick of the clock, very even, slow, dryly metrical, increased the silence and solitude. I put my ear to the door of the room, in hope of hearing a groan, a word, an insult, anything that will be a sign of life, that might bring back peace to my conscience. I was ready to let myself be struck ten, twenty, a hundred times by the colonel's hand, 
but nothing. All was silent. I began to pace the room aimlessly. I sat down. I brought my hands despairingly to my head. I repented ever having come to the place. "'Cursed be the hour in which I ever accepted such a position!' I cried. And I flamed with resentment against the priest of Niteroi, against the doctor, the vicar, against all those who had procured the place for me and forced me to remain there so long. They, too, I convinced myself, were accomplices in my crime." As the silence finally terrified me, I opened the window, in the hope of hearing, at least, the murmuring of the wind. But no wind was blowing. The night was peaceful. The stars were sparkling with the indifference of those who remove their hats before a passing funeral procession and continue to speak of other things. I remained at the window for some time, my elbows on the sill, my gaze seeking to penetrate the night, forcing myself to make a mental summary of my life, so that I might escape the present agony. I believe it was only then that I thought clearly about the penalty of my crime. I saw myself already being accused and threatened with dire punishment. From this moment Fear complicated my feeling of remorse. I felt my hair stand on end. A few minutes later, I saw three or four human shapes spying at me from the terrace, where they seemed to be waiting in ambush. I withdrew. The shapes vanished into the air. It had been an hallucination. Before daybreak, I bandaged the wounds that I had received in the face. Then only did I pluck up enough courage to return to the other room. Twice I started, only to turn back. But it must be done, so I entered. Even then I did not at first go to the bed. My legs shook, my heart pounded. I thought of flight but that would have been a confession of the crime. It was, on the contrary, very important for me to hide all traces of it. I approached the bed. I looked at the corpse, with its widely distended eyes and its mouth gaping, as if uttering the eternal reproach of the centuries. Cain, what hast thou done with thy brother? I discovered on the neck the marks of my nails. I buttoned the shirt to the top and threw the bed cover up to the dead man's chin. Then I called the servant and told him that the colonel had died towards morning. I sent him to notify the vicar and the doctor. The first idea that came to me was to leave as soon as possible, under the pretext that my brother was ill. And in reality I had received, several days before, from Hiu, a letter 
telling me that he was not at all well. But I considered that my immediate departure might arouse suspicion, and I decided to wait. I laid out the corpse myself, with the assistance of an old, near-sighted negro. I remained continually in the room of the dead. I trembled lest something out of the way should be discovered. I wanted to assure myself that no mistrust could be read upon the faces of the others, but I did not dare to look any person in the eye. Everything made me impatient, the going and coming of those who, on tiptoe, crossed the room, their whisperings, the ceremonies and the prayers of the vicar. The hour having come, I closed the coffin, but with trembling hands, so trembling that somebody noticed it, and commented upon it aloud with pity. Poor Procopio, despite what he has suffered from his master, he is strongly moved. It sounded like irony to me. I was anxious to have it all over with. We went out. Once in the street, the passing from semi-obscurity to daylight dazed me, and I staggered. I began to fear that it would no longer be possible for me to conceal the crime. I kept my eyes steadily fixed upon the ground, and took my place in the procession. When all was over, I breathed once more. I was at peace with men. But I was not at peace with my conscience, and the first nights, naturally, I spent in restlessness and affliction. Need I tell you that I hastened to return to Rio de Janeiro, and that I dwelt there in terror and suspense, although far removed from the scene of my crime? I never smiled. I scarcely spoke. I ate very little. I suffered hallucinations and nightmares. Let the dead rest in peace, they would say to me. It is out of all reason to show so much melancholy. And I was happy to find how people interpreted my symptoms, and praised the dead man highly, calling him a good soul, surly, in truth, but with a heart of gold. And as I spoke in such wise, I convinced myself, at least for a few moments at a time. Another interesting phenomenon was taking place within me. I tell it to you, because you will, perhaps, make some useful deduction from it. And that was, although I had very little religion in me, I had a mass song for the eternal rest of the colonel at the Church of the Blessed Sacrament. I sent out no invitations to it. I did not whisper a word of it to anybody. I went there alone. I knelt during the whole service and made many signs of the cross. I paid the priest double and distributed alms at the door, all in the name of the deceased. I wish to deceive nobody. The proof of this lies in the fact 
that I did all this without letting any other know. To complete this incident, I may add that I never mentioned the colonel without repeating, May his soul rest in peace. And I told several funny anecdotes about him, some amusing caprices of his, about a week after my arrival at Hill, I received a letter from the vicar. He announced that the will of the colonel had been opened, and that I was there designated as his sole heir. Imagine my stupefaction! I was sure that I had read wrongly. I showed it to my brother, to friends, they all read the same thing. It was there, in black and white. I was really the sole heir of the colonel. Then I suddenly thought that this was a trap to catch me. But then I considered that there were other ways of arresting me, if the crime had been discovered. Moreover, I knew the vicar's honesty, and I was sure that he would not be a party to such a plan. I reread the letter five times, ten times, a hundred times. It was true. I was the colonel's sole heir. How much was he worth? my brother asked me. I don't know. But I know that he was very wealthy. Really, he's shown that he was a very true friend to you. He certainly was. He was. Thus, by a strange irony of fate, all the colonel's wealth came into my hands. At first, I thought of refusing the legacy. It seemed odious to take a sou of that inheritance. It seemed worse than the reward of a hired assassin. For three days this thought obsessed me. But more and more I was thrust against this consideration, that my refusal would not fail to awake suspicion. Finally, I settled upon a compromise I would accept the inheritance, and would distribute it in small sums, secretly. This was not merely scruple on my part. It was also the desire to redeem my crime by virtuous deeds. And it seemed the only way to recover my peace of mind and feel that accounts were straight. I made hurried preparations and left. As I neared the little village, the sad event returned obstinately to my memory. Everything about the place, as I looked at it once again, suggested tragic deeds. At every turning the road, I seemed to see the ghost of the colonel loom and despite myself, I evoked in my imagination his cries, his struggles, his looks on that horrible night of the crime. Crime or struggle.
really. It was rather a struggle. I had been attacked. I had defended myself. And, in self-defense, it had been an unfortunate struggle, a genuine tragedy. This idea gripped me, and I reviewed all the abuse he had heaped upon me. I counted the blows, the names. It was not the colonel's fault, that I knew well. It was his affliction that made him so peevish, and even wicked. But I pardoned all, everything. The worst of it was the end of that fatal night. I also considered that, in any case, the colonel had not long to live. His days were numbered. Did not he himself feel that? Didn't he say, every now and then, How much longer have I to live? Two weeks, or one, perhaps less? This was not life. It was slow agony, if one may so name the continual martyrdom of that poor man. And who knows, who can say that the struggle and his death were not simply a coincidence? That was, after all, quite possible. It was even most probable. Careful weighing of the matter showed that it couldn't have been otherwise. At length, this idea, too, engraved itself upon my mind. Something tugged at my heart as I entered the village. I wanted to run back, but I dominated my emotions and I pressed forward. I was received with a shower of congratulations. The vicar communicated to me the particulars of the will, enumerated the pious gifts, and, as he spoke, praised the Christian forbearance and the faithfulness which I had shown in my care of the deceased, who, despite his temper and brutality, had so well demonstrated his gratitude. Certainly, I said, looking nervously around, I was astounded. Everybody praised my conduct, such patience, such devotion. The first formalities of the inventory detained me for a while. I chose a solicitor, things followed their course in regular fashion. During this time there was much talk of the colonel. People came and told me tales about him, but without observing the priest's moderation. I defended the memory of the colonel. I recalled his good qualities, his virtues. Had he not been austere? Austere, they would interrupt. Nonsense! He's dead, and it's all over now, but he was a regular demon. And they would cite incidents, and relate the colonel's perversities, some of which were nothing less than extraordinary. Need I confess it? At first, I listened to all this talk with great curiosity. Then, a queer pleasure penetrated my heart.
a pleasure from which, sincerely, I tried to escape. And I continued to defend the colonel. I explained him. I attributed much of the fault-finding to local animosity. I admitted, yes, I admitted, that he had been a trifle exacting, somewhat violent. Somewhat? Why, he was as furious as a snake, exclaimed the barber. And all, the collector, the apothecary, the clerk, all were of the same opinion and they would start to relate other anecdotes. They reviewed the entire life of the deceased. The old folks took particular delight in recalling the cruelties of his youth. And that queer pleasure, intimate, mute, insidious, grew within me. A sort of moral tapeworm whose coils I tore out in vain for they would immediately form again and take firmer hold than ever. The formalities of the inventory afforded me a little relief. Moreover, public opinion was so unanimously unfavorable to the colonel that little by little the place lost the lugubrious aspect that had at first struck me. At last, I entered into possession of the legacy, which I converted into land titles and cash. Several months had elapsed, and the idea of distributing the inheritance in charity and pious donations was by no means so strong as it had at first been. It even seemed to me that this would be sheer affectation. I revised my initial plan. I gave away several insignificant sums to the poor. I presented the village church with a few new ornaments. I gave several thousand francs to the sacred house of mercy, etc. I did not forget to erect a monument upon the colonel's grave, a very simple monument all marble, the work of a Neapolitan sculptor who remained at Rio until 1866, and who has since died, I believe, in Paraguay. Years have gone by. My memory has become vague and unreliable. Sometimes I think of the colonel but without feeling again the terrors of those early days, all the doctors to whom I have described his afflictions have been unanimous as regards the inevitable end in store for the invalid, and were indeed surprised that he should so long have resisted. It is just possible that I may have, involuntarily, exaggerated the description of his various symptoms. But the truth is that he was sure of sudden death, even had this fatality not occurred. Goodbye, my dear sir. If you deem these notes not totally devoid of value, reward me for them 
with a marble tomb, and place there for my epitaph this variant, which I have made, of the divine sermon on the mount. Blessed are they who possess, for they shall be consoled. End of section 1